on a totally different path. So, so Second Thessalonians chapter two is the challenging chapter in here, and uh, probably it's the reason why some people uh, haven't uh, taught it often. It's the reason why I haven't taught it often sometimes. <laughs> so uh, I understand how that one is. But there comes a time when you get old enough, you got have to quit saying, uh, I'm going to te- learn that when I get older and have to do the best you can with what you uh, can do. So we'll do that. Uh, but it's a challenging chapter nevertheless. So let's start out with uh, the first two verses. Now we request, request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So, he says, We request to be brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what he's ultimately saying in this passage, and you'll see it in verse 2, is that Jesus has not come yet. The day of the Lord has not yet occurred. You might think, do you really have to say that? Isn't that pretty obvious? However, there are even people in 21st century America, Christians that are teaching that Jesus has already come. Uh, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have been t- saying that for a hundred years and so forth. So evidently it is necessary and there are people who might debate that question and apparently there were back here. Now, so he's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. That is kind of an interesting verb. You know, so you think about the fact that when Jesus comes back, we'll be gathered up together with him. He'll call us up, he'll raise us up, and so forth. But do you know the only other place in the New Testament that uses that verb, our gathering together with him, is Hebrews 10.25. Not forsaking the gathering together of ourselves, as the manner of some is. And that leads to an interesting thought. You ever thought about how our coming together to worship with our brethren is kind of a foretaste of our great being gathered together with the Lord when he returns? At least the same verb describes each of them. It's kind of like our gathering together in miniature uh, on the earth that, that is an anticipation of the great gathering together we'll have when Jesus comes back. But he says he doesn't want them to be quickly shaken from their composure or to be disturbed in any way to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he doesn't want them thrown off balance and believe that the Lord's already come. That's his main point in this first half of the chapter, is to prove that Jesus has not come back yet. Um, and, And so it will help us to keep that in mind as the ultimate goal of this section. Now, why would they have thought that? Well, he says, be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. Maybe he's not so sure where they may have gotten the idea that the Lord had already come, or maybe different ones got it from different things. But he vehemently denies this teaching, this false doctrine. And he says, you know, disturbed either by a spirit. Did some of them have some sort of a spirit they think communicated that to them? Or a message? I don't know if that means a message that some angel gave them or a message they got from somebody. Or a letter as if from us. You know, 
you might not have thought about the challenge in the first century of receiving a letter and being sure it came from the apostle that said he wrote it. There could be forgeries. And in fact, you will see in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Was he not saying, check my signature? You know, assuming there might be somebody else writing a letter and penning Paul's name at the end? He said, if I wrote it, you know, I always write the conclusion, and this is the way I write. Look at my letters. You know, we check signatures. And so, I mean, because if you wanted to pass off some teaching and get the brethren to believe it, what better thing than to uh, forge a letter and say it was Paul's? You know, if they thought Paul wrote it, they'd believe it. He said, well, don't be misled by a letter that you thought might have come from us. You know, there are probably a couple of other things while we're at it that would have helped them to distinguish a true letter of Paul's from, from a forgery. One, another thing would be who brought them the letter. Paul normally uses trusted letter carriers that could vouch for the fact Paul wrote it. And, and sometimes he will even give some attention to the people who wrote the letter, uh, who, who carried the letter. But, but the third thing is, I think the content of the letter itself. If it's teaching something that's contrary to the, the gospel they received, Galatians 1 would say, let it be a curse, even if it's an angel comes and tells you. So if this message, the message of the letter is clearly not what Paul had been teaching before, then you know it wasn't Paul's. I'm just suggesting those might be a couple of other criteria they might have used. We don't think maybe so much about that question because we don't have so much need to think about that. But it kind of makes you think about the challenge that the first century brethren would have had. Which brings us to the most difficult part of this passage and in many ways the most difficult part of the New Testament by a lot of people's account anyway. And I want to suggest something. I've probably said this before. But the difficulty of a passage like this drives home the importance of shouting and whispering at appropriate occasions. Now what I mean by that is some teachings in the Bible are frequent and clear and, and very obvious and they ought to be shouted. We affirm them, we proclaim them with all confidence and boldness because clearly that's what the Lord is saying. There are other subjects that are infrequent and less clear, and we're less confident that we understand them, we whisper those. Whispering when we're not sure that we've got what the passage is saying is not being wishy-washy. It's, it's actually having such a high respect for the text of Scripture that we dare not speak more definitively than we're convicted that it's saying. If we're not sure what it means, we ought to say so. Or if we say, I, this, this seems like the most reasonable position, but I don't have full confidence in it, we should say so. It's not that we don't have confidence in what the Word says, it's we don't have confidence that we've understood what the Word said. And so some things we're going to teach more forcefully and more with more greater conviction, because we've seen many passages, they seem very unequivocal, and we're good with that. There's other things like this one, that there's just some things in this I'm not sure that I understand. And it's better to admit that 
than to just bluster your way through in my judgment. So I think this passage is a good illustration of needing to shout and to whisper at appropriate occasions. All right, thoughts and comments on those first two verses. I can get around verse 2. The, uh, Eighty-seven people. Uh, well, that's a good question. Of course, they don't think that the Lord had come at that point when he writes Second Thessalonians. They, the most of them say he came in eighty seventy. Obviously, that's what she said. So, Second Thessalonians was probably written before that. So, when do you think this was written? Probably early fifties, something like that. You know, he was in Corinth from 51 to 52 because it was during Gallio's time as governor. And Corinth may have even been when he wrote the second letter of this one. It's probably the best chance is that's when he wrote it. Jehovah Witnesses would also say Jesus hadn't come yet. Yeah, because they say he came in 1914, so he hadn't come for a long time. They they say he came and nobody saw him because he was invisible. 1914? 1914. Did you see him? I did not. But yeah, that's that's but being invisible, nobody could see him. I think they predicted he would come, and then when he didn't, that was their explanation. They also, you know, they wrote that uh, very uh, the book that was very popular at the time in 1925. Millions now living will never die, and that's becoming more and more of a problem to them. <laughs> that was written in 25. So basically anybody that says Jesus has already come back would say he came after this. Yes, day. yes. I don't know anybody who would say he came before this, and this would be a good passage for that. I mean, for the eighty seventy stuff, just harping on First Corinthians 15 and the resurrection, that is the passage for that. We have not been raised from the dead yet. Of course, they don't believe in the resurrection. That's ultimately the case. At least the eighty seventy people I know. They believe in the transference of souls from Hades to heaven or whatever they think the resurrection was, but they don't believe in the bodily resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15. So uh, that's where I would camp out. But there were obviously others at this time that thought or that were teaching that Jesus had already come. You are right. And what they thought, I have no idea. You wonder how, pitch yourself. Obviously, you're you're still here. Right. (laughs) There are other references to that, though, some that that claim that he had already come or uh, I mean in some of the other letters I think didn't Paul reference things I'm like not, that I'm not thinking about anything at the moment but I thought yeah. there was uh, like in uh, it may not hit my mental category yeah uh, I can't remember this is a key one anyway but yeah there may be I'm just not thinking of one All right, so let's get into this one then. Three to eight. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know that, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrain, restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Uh, and then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord 
will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. All right. So he says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. That is, the day of the Lord, Jesus' coming, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So essentially he's saying there are things that have to happen before Jesus returns. And they haven't happened yet, and until they do, you can know Jesus hasn't come back. That's the basic point he's making. Now, trying to understand the things that he says were going to happen first, that's the more difficult question. But he says the apostasy has to come first. So I assume an apostasy is a rebellion against God, and that this rebellion is going to come first, and um, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, there's a debate about who the man of lawlessness is, and we'll continue to think about this as we go through this. But a lawless individual is doesn't respect the law. He's a, he's a rebel. He's a, he's a, in opposition to the Lord, clearly. He's not, he disregards the will of God. And he is the son of destruction, so we, he's doomed. You know, he doesn't have a future. We know those things about him. So we know from the very beginning, he's not going to succeed. But the question of that the man of lawlessness is revealed, I think is an important statement in the passage. And I think is is debatable what he means is revealed. I think that's usually taken as like he'll show up and you'll see him or, you know, he'll... You know, you'll, you'll, you'll know him, you'll notice him, he's revealed that way. I don't think that's what he means by revealed here. He also mentions in verse 6, that in his time he will be revealed. And, but look especially at verse 8, that the law, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. I would suggest the revealing doesn't mean he shows up. Or, or you can see him, but that he's exposed. That his mask is torn off, and he's revealed for who he really is, and that's what happens when Jesus comes back. So that he's saying that Jesus won't come back until the man of lawlessness is exposed, the son of destruction. That the Jesus coming back is going to be simultaneously with the def- simultaneous with the defeat of evil and rebellion, and the tearing off of the mask and the facade of this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction. Now he goes ahead to describe this one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship. So he's super prideful. He's super arrogant. He exalts himself. Uh, above every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He is a counterfeiter. He is a, he almost, uh, tries to mimic the Lord. You know, he has his coming. Uh, he, he has uh, his, his, you know, affirmation of deity. Uh, there's wor- his worship. We'll see in a moment his revelation, his signs and wonders. Uh, so, so he's trying to actually exalt himself to the position of God. 
and and be God. Um, displaying himself as being God. That's that's his whole goal is to get the honor and glory and Godship that only belongs to the Lord. So he's a very bad dude. Um, parading himself as if he were the very deity. Now he says in verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? You know, I, I was telling you this uh, when I was with you. Um, and so Paul's kind of jogging their memory. Now, that may be why he didn't explain more here. You know, because this is just really, we're going to come to some points where we don't have a whole lot to go on and trying to understand some details. But maybe it's because he doesn't really need to explain more. He just references, remember what I told you? And they will remember that. Um, you wish you had the rest of the conversation. Uh, and you know what restrains him now. So that in his time, he will be revealed. There's something now. That's keeping him from being revealed, exposed, and destroyed. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So there's something that, for a time, enables this man of lawlessness to prevail, to, to do well, and not be exposed yet. Now, this is probably the most controversial thing I'll say, and this is not the common belief. I think this is a reasonable explanation. I think it's the best one, but it's not a common one. And that is the word restrain in verse 6 and 7. It is a word that can mean different things. It means to hold. Our translators take it in the sense of hold back and restrain, and it can mean that can also mean to hold fast, or it can mean to hold sway or to rule. I think he's saying, you know what holds sway, what rules, what prevails now. That this man of lawlessness is prevailing to this point. Uh, and as long as he continues prevailing, you know, he has the upper hand, and then he will be taken away. So he prevails now. And he'll do that until Jesus returns when he will be exposed, he'll be manifested and taken out of the way. So I think the idea is for now, he's got, he looks like he's got the upper hand. Um, but, but, but he says for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The, the idea of the mystery is something unrevealed. So for the world, they have not seen the man of lawlessness for who he really is. He's kind of incognito. You know, he's not perceived to be the man of lawlessness. That The world doesn't see that because it's still a mystery. It's still unrevealed. When Jesus comes back, he's going to reveal it. He's going to expose it. He's going to, to manifest his, his lawlessness and slay him with his breath. Uh, before he finishes the description, you already see his doom. He'll be annihilated by the breath of Jesus' mouth. Which is kind of interesting in the sense that he wins the battle just by the power of his word. You know, even though this is a big shot, he'll be destroyed with just Jesus' breath, I think, by the idea of, of Jesus' words, really. Um, will bring them to an end, the appearance of his coming. So who is this man of lawlessness? 
I will suggest something. There are some weaknesses to this, but I still think this is probably as uh, has as little difficulty as anything else is to identify him with Satan himself, and that this is referring to the wickedness of Satan, to Satan's actions. This is what Satan is trying to do. He may use various entities or instruments, but that this is this is not just one man. Clearly, this is this is one greater entity than that, and I, I would suggest it's Satan. The, one of the biggest complaints about that view would be verse 9. It's coming as an accordance with the activity of Satan. But Satan's, Satan's coming is in accord with his activity. It's just like him. So that, that I, I would not be at all dogmatic about that, but I do think that's the best explanation I know. The point still, even if we're wrong about several details here, the point is, as long as evil and wickedness prevails, Jesus didn't come back. If Jesus had come back, he would expose the man of lawlessness, whoever that is, and destroyed him. We wouldn't have the rebellion and lawlessness and wickedness that we have now if Jesus had already returned. So that's, I think that's the b- bottom line. I mean, what he's trying to teach in this second chapter is, don't think the day of the Lord has come. Why do you know it hasn't come? Lawlessness still prevails and it hasn't been defeated yet. It hasn't been destroyed. When Jesus comes back, it will be. Now, there's plenty of uh, questions about all that, but uh, I'll pause there and you can ask questions in my comments. So is he saying the same thing in verse 3? The apostasy comes? Yes. And that's just another way of saying the exact same thing. He say, he's, the apostasy would be the idea of the rebelliousness, the activity of Satan, and so forth. Or that would be the ones that fall for it. Right. That would be the apostasy. Right. There's going to be... there's You have this evil period where evil prevails, wickedness prevails, people follow after it and all that. I think his point is if there's still evil, if there's still wickedness... Jesus kind of come back because he's going to destroy it. He's going to expose it and destroy it. So how can Jesus? How can we say Jesus came back in AD seventy? Look at all the wickedness that still exists. When Jesus comes back, he will reveal the lawless one and bring it to an end with the breath of his mouth. So I think the bottom line point is you know Jesus can't have come back because there's still wickedness going on. So you would say, so maybe looking at that first verse or the verse three, you know, this this isn't going to happen until the sum of these things. Because if you just looked at it and say it's, it, you know, obviously uh, we know this hasn't happened because the apostasy hasn't come. Well, that's kind of a an ongoing. You could argue some of that has already happened. Sure, even I at think this so. point. But, but it's, what, it's but still just saying, prevailing. It's still coming. It's still here. Okay, and, and it's part of that step of this process that he's pointing out, and not not the whole thing. It's not like the apostasy has to happen, which hasn't happened yet, and this has to happen, which hasn't happened. Yet. He's just saying the apostasy has to be completed and revealed, and all of that together. Sure, is the whole picture. Yeah, I, I, when he says apostasy comes first, I'm not thinking of just one step in which the apostasy comes. Right, but the apostasy has to be present. Um, you know, uh, uh, the apostasy will be here and then revealed. Right. So that's the, what the way I'm seeing that. 
what other word would you use as a synonym for the restrain? Prevail. In each of the times that it's used? Or does that, yeah. So you know what prevails? You know what prevails now. So that in his time it will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness already at work, only he who prevails will do so until it's taken, he's taken out of the way. That, that, you can't see. Yeah. That, that, is, that is a reasonable translation, but that is not followed by very many. I think, I think that technically that, that word can certainly mean that. But why that's not uh, accepted on more hands, I will, for the benefit of the tape, nothing else. Where I got that and what convinced me is a commentary in the College Press series, the College Press NIV commentary series, which is a good commentary series. But, but that they presented that very convincingly to me. I don't know a better explanation. I'm totally willing to sacrifice that if somebody can come up with a better approach. But that made more sense to me. You know, usually we're trying, people are trying to figure out what holds back this one right now. Well, I don't think he's being held back. I think he's prevailing. And I think that's the sense of the context. So that has been my explanation for probably the last 15 years, but, but it's, uh, anything I say about three through eight is certainly tentative and whispered, not shouted. Yeah, it would be hard to find another explanation or just someone or thing to put into that. Yes, it is. That doesn't, that doesn't already exist. And, and know, that still exists. And that still exists. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, people come up with all kinds of things, but none of them seem very convincing to me. And yeah, the same thing they've done with the man of lawlessness. People come up with a lot of stuff, but not all of them seem too small. You know, is it the Roman emperor? Well, right. You know, he's gone. Is it the pope? Again, that makes a little more sense, but you know, it almost gives too much. You know, focus on that. I mean, there's a lot of false things that aren't connected with Catholicism and so forth. So. I just I think making it more general, Satan, it causes less difficulties, even though it has some. I, this is probably so far off base. This is making me think of Revelation and Satan being bound. Does that play into this? Well, not in the way I look at Satan being bound, because Satan is still being released and doing other things. I think he's constantly being bound and constantly being released. I see Revelation 20 as being a timeless picture. But there might be some people who would connect that. Obviously, a lot of people take 2 Thessalonians 2 as the Antichrist. That would be the common denominational explanation. And they would tie it in with the sea beast of Revelation 13 and all kinds of stuff. In the Antichrist of, of uh, First John, Second John, you know, they kind of throw all those in together, and so they they would say the Antichrist will be coming, which has its own set of serious difficulties. So I think that's probably not the right explanation. So I guess I was again. I, I need to go back and reread Revelation, where Satan's bound. I guess I was thinking where he is released, so that's this picture here. So, like, this is the one-time picture of the... Maybe. 
Maybe I'm way off base. I, I, I don't, by my interpretation of Revelation 20, it wouldn't have any application. Okay. It's challenging. You see why people don't teach Second Thessalonians. <laughs> Maybe some people do, but I haven't very much. All right, well, how about uh, 9 to 12? That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness and for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So, this one, his coming, and notice he keeps emphasizing his coming. He has a coming just like the Lord does. He tries to imitate that. His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, just like Satan is, with all power and signs and false wonders. Again, counterfeiting the things of the Lord, trying to convince people on the basis of miraculous deeds, you know, miracles themselves don't prove a man's from God. You know, Satan works. Now, I don't think Satan can do what God can do, but Satan can do some impressive stuff. And I don't have an explanation for all of them. And and you see that in a lot of passages. How did the magicians in Pharaoh's day, you know, manage to produce more frogs and, you know, all that kind of stuff? Now, eventually, God got a little deep for them and they couldn't continue to imitate it. But maybe they had some connection with Satan, that they were able to do some things. So don't forget that signs and wonders can accompany falsehood as well as truth. If, if, if somebody does something you can't explain, but what their, what their message is is totally against what God says, then it's a sign and wonder of Satan. It's not the authentic ones of the Lord. And, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Of course, that's what Satan loves. Deception. He's trying to keep people from seeing the true nature of what he's doing. And so if he can deceive, if he can lie, if he can pull the wool over people's eyes, then he can uh, convince them to be on his side with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And and so what's, you know, you might almost think, well, these are victims. You know, how were they supposed to know that Satan was up to no good? How were they supposed to know that these are uh, false wonders? Or how are they supposed to see through the deception? Well, notice he says, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The love of the truth determines whether somebody is taken in by the deception or sees through it. It's not because of forces outside their control but because they don't love the truth. If you don't love the truth, will God allow you to be deceived? Absolutely. Will he allow you to develop a belief that's wrong? Yes. It's like Romans 1, where God gives people up, gives people over to what they wanted. He punishes them with their own desires. And so God will do that. God will say, if that's what you really want, you know, I'll let you have it. Uh, God honors the human freedom to choose. And he will make sure, in verse uh, 11, that they are totally deluded. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. And people can get to the point where they are just as confident about falsehood as they are about truth. 
that they can be totally convinced they're good salesmen when they're like that. You know, somebody who really honestly, totally believes what their error is saying will be more persuasive. But what was their problem? They did not believe the truth that took pleasure in wickedness, verse 12. And so they, they'll be judged because of that. If we delight in wickedness, we won't believe the truth. That's a real danger of continuing to love to do wrong. People who love to do wrong are easy targets for false teaching because their desire to do wrong makes them eager for any false teaching that will justify them in that. So we are responsible for our, our attitude that leads us to being deceived, that leads us to be susceptible to this deluding influence. Um, so, so it shows you the danger in Satan and whatever this lawlessness and apostasy is. It's deceptive. And, and the only way we'll keep from being deceived ourselves is if we receive the love of the truth and we don't take pleasure in wickedness. You know, what we wish, that we readily believe. And so if our heart is not 100% with the Lord, then we're vulnerable to being another target of Satan's uh, deception. And, and so, again, the point of this is Jesus hasn't come back yet. This deception and people doing wickedness and loving it, that's still going on. We're still in this period where Jesus has not revealed the true colors of this man of lawlessness. Comments and questions? All right, why don't we do 13 to 17, then we'll take a break. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. For it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen our, your hearts in every good work and word. So this is, in desi this is designed to be a contrast with what he's just been saying. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord because they are in a totally different category. They have totally different qualities. Here are people who do have faith in the truth, the end of verse 13, not people who, verse 12, do not believe the truth. So we thank God for you. We, we are, we are, we're very grateful for who you are and your character because God has chosen you. There is a textual question here. Um, and my margin notes, one early manuscript reads first fruits instead of from the beginning. The internal evidence favors first fruits. That's probably the case. Uh, that uh, he means God has chosen you as first fruits, as people belonging to him for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So these are people who have been chosen by God and consecrated, sanctified, to serve him. He's thankful for them. He sees them as a breath of fresh air. He's been talking about the terrible stuff going on in 3 through 12, 
but we're thankful for you because of who you are. And he says, it was for this he called you through our gospel. Our call comes through the gospel. Um, and, and of course, we need to be sure that we are listening to the true gospel and are not misled. But, but if we're listening to the gospel, it calls us to the Lord that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. Ultimately, as he'd said in chapter one, to share in the glory of Jesus. What a wonderful blessing. What a wonderful hope and, uh, aspiration for us to be able to share in that glory. That's why he called us, that we would gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, here's your, you know, admonition. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. You know, don't listen to another gospel. Stay, be stable and firm in the face of these false teachings. We need a lot of teaching so that we're not shaky and wobbly and, you know, wavering. Uh, stand firm. Hold it to the to the, what you've been taught. Um, tradition means something passed down, something that we didn't originate, but something was handed to us, which is the nature of the gospel. We did not originate the gospel. We weren't even the first ones to receive the gospel. It's been handed down to us by the apostles and prophets. So it's a tradition. Now, we think of Jesus speaking against tradition, but he speaks against traditions that had their origin with man. It's not just that it's passed down that makes it bad, it's where did it come from? Was it human tradition or God's tradition? And so what Paul passed on to them wasn't the product of his own imagination, but it was God's revelation. So you need to stand firm and hold to the things I passed down to you, the things you've been taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So Paul goes to a place like Thessalonica, Thessalonica, and he teaches orally. He's, you know, he preaches to them. He teaches them. Should they accept that as the word of God? Yes. Paul then leaves there and writes a couple letters back to them. Should they receive that as the word of God? Yes. The written word and the spoken word of Paul are on the same level. What he wrote would be of this equal equal authority with what he said. What he said would have been of equal authority with what he wrote. If we had a tape of a sermon of Paul to the Thessalonians, we would consider that authoritative. However, we do not have that. All we have is his written words. So that's our basis for understanding the truth that's been passed down. It's by what Paul has written. But for them, they needed to follow what Paul said, whether it was written or oral. I'll pause. Do you have a question or comment through verse 15? And 16 is another one of his prayers. This is an unusual prayer in how he begins it. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and hope, good hope by grace, comfort and strength in your hearts. It's, you know, unusual some to bracket Jesus with God. You know, may God and Jesus. He does that sometimes. 
but not real often. Uh, for example, in in First Thessalonians three eleven, now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct His way to to you. But I believe this may be the only passage where He does it the opposite. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God the Father. That seems rather startling that He directs it primarily to Jesus and also to God the Father. This is a, one of many passages that I think show. We have full authority to be praying to Jesus and to God, the Father, or in this case, to both of them. You know, it's perfectly appropriate to address certain things to one or the other or to both here. Uh, it's just, it's just uh, interesting. It shows you he, he really believes in the deity of Jesus. So may Jesus and God, who's loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, there's the wonderful things God's done for us. And notice he's given us eternal comfort. The world offers us temporary comfort. You know, not such good comfort sometimes even at that. But he offers us, he's given us eternal comfort, good hope by grace. And he's praying that God would comfort and strengthen their hearts in every good work and, and word and work and work. So that the God would comfort them. I, I wonder if he's not thinking again about the persecution and the sufferings and the afflictions they're going through, that God would comfort and strengthen their hearts. They need strong hearts, strong determination, strong conviction in every good work and word, that God would give them the strength to serve him in every good work and word. Uh, he had prayed, uh, he'd, sent, he'd sent Timothy, rather, in 1 Thessalonians 3.2, to strengthen and encourage them as to their faith. They need strength to be able to say and do the right things. But, comments and questions on chapter 2? Well, I want to take a break here for a minute.